Christ Jesus our Lord. Know that the Lord is God, it is he that made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are bare and open before you. You know everything about us, the thoughts in our minds and the desires in our hearts. You, There are no secrets hidden from you. And so we pray this day that you would cleanse our hearts and thoughts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that you would set them upon you so that we would be able to worship you faithfully and sincerely and perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first hymn is number 457, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Jesus Christ, the grace of God, has appeared, bringing salvation and teaching us to renounce impiety, to live lives that are self-controlled and upright and godly. Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who were zealous for good deeds. In humility and faith, let us confess our sin to Almighty God. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer us, for we are poor and needy. We have fallen into the pit of sin, and we cannot lift ourselves out of it. Deliver us, O God, for we trust in you. 
Be gracious to us, O Lord, for to you we cry all the day. You, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to our prayer. Listen to our plea for grace. For you are great, and you have done wondrous things in our Lord Jesus Christ, overthrowing the powers of sin, death, and the devil through the death and resurrection of your Son. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, and be gracious to us, forgiving all our sins for Christ's sake. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts by the grace of your Holy Spirit to fear your name. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. People of Christ, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If, while we were sinners and God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, we are saved by his life. Beloved of God, I declare to you as a minister of the gospel that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ are truly forgiven of all their sin. And this is the good news of the gospel. We say together, praise be to God. Followers of Christ, the apostolic instruction to the church that we hear in Scripture is to pray. The Scripture tells the church to pray for one another, that we may be healed, to pray earnestly that what is lacking in your faith may be supplied, that God may make us worthy of his call and may fulfill every work of faith by his power, and for all that we need and lack, for the well-being of others, that we may not do wrong, for our improvement. All these things are mentioned in Scripture for which we are to pray. Praying for each other is a daily service that you owe to God and owe to one another. But it's not simply a duty that we do, an exercise that we do. It's because we have been reconciled to God in Christ. And so it's really the imagery is of children going to their father. And that's what we do in prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. If you do not pray for others, then you deny them a service that Christians are called to perform. So we can be stingy with our prayers. Such prayer is a Christian discipline that we all must have. Prayer is something that every Christian is to practice. Pray every day. It is best for our prayers to be first thing in the morning, so we begin our day with prayer. It's also good to pray throughout the day, and you'll find many reasons to do so. And then it's good to conclude your day with prayer. Our prayers for others are called intercessory prayers, and intercessory prayers should be concrete and not just general. I know when I was a kid, I'd say, oh, Lord, thank you for the food and help all the people in the world. That's uh, very general, and there's, you know, God hears that prayer. It's not like that's a wrong prayer, but as, as we get older, we realize, oh, there's specific needs that people have and specific things that need to be addressed So we need to be concrete in our prayers. The interest in these prayers is for specific people and for specific difficulties and therefore specific requests that we make. As Christians who are pardoned of our sin and reconciled to God, know that God hears our prayers and he does respond to them. Our Lord Jesus Christ has taught us to pray and he's given us the Holy Spirit so that we, to help us to pray. Therefore, let us intercede for each other, and pray for the needs in this world. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 629, What a Friend We Have in Jesus.
heaven, Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in Let us pray. O Lord and Father of your blessed people in Christ, not just us, but all your people who've come to Christ, who've been called to him. We thank you for the gift of faith inspired by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for having called us to yourself and for consecrating us to your service so that we are all set out in this world to serve you in the name of Jesus Christ in whatever vocation and setting we're in. We thank you for having set us apart also to the sacred ministry of prayer. Our Father, we do pray for our enemies. We pray for people who have been hostile towards us, who have caused us lack of sleep, who have been on our minds and troubled us for perhaps days or years. And for others that we hear are attacking Christians around this world, we pray for them. We pray that you would stop them from their hostility, from disrupting the church's worship, vandalizing its property, or just simply casting stones and, and uh, harsh words at Christians. Lord, we each 
have had some level of this in our own lives, but we know it is magnified in many places in this world. And so we ask you, hear our prayers as we make them for our enemies and for your uh, protection. For those who have less than we do and those who have special needs, we pray for them. Those who suffer any sickness or weakness, we ask you to give them health and strength and good care. For those who are troubled and disturbed, we pray you would give them rest and wisdom. And to those who are lonely and alienated, we pray you would give them fellowship and love. Hear our prayers for those who come to mind. For those in captivity who are forbidden to see their families or live in freedom, who hide from the governments of their lands, we pray for them. For the church in those places where it's unlawful to sing your praise and worship you, or where it must endure great persecution. We pray for the Christians in places where it's obvious that these are the problems in Iraq and Syria, Palestine, Iran, Egypt, North Korea, Myanmar, China and for the Christians even in in Central America who live near drug cartels that seem to be ruthless in their attacks. We also pray for the end of the war in Ukraine and that you would hold back the nations from war. For these we pray, hear our prayers. Almighty God, our Father, we pray for the leaders of our country, for Joe Biden, our president, for Gary Peters and Debbie Stabenow, our senators, for Gretchen Whitmer, our governor, and our state representatives. Grant them wisdom and moral discernment for what is right and what is wrong. We pray for good moral order and justice and peaceful protest. Give the church freedom to pray and preach and teach the word of God so that we may serve you faithfully and that others can hear of Jesus Christ. Hear our prayers for this nation. And now we pray for the church across this world that is weak and shows often its sin, but we thank you that it is a place where your grace is at work through the preaching of the word and the sacraments and the fellowship of the church, and that you are healing people in your church from their sin. We pray that the church would always bear witness to Jesus Christ and that you would make the churches that follow Christ one in faith and unity and in humility and obedience and courageous proclamation of your word. Here are prayers for specific churches that come to mind. And for the missionaries of the OPC, today we think of Sam and his wife, Unsu Folta, and Mike McCabe and his wife, Lil, in Asia. We also pray for the churches in this presbytery for Redeemer, OPC, and Ada, and their pastors, Jeff DeBoer, Don, uh, Dan Adams, Jonathan Lowrip, and also for New Life Fellowship in Holland with their pastor, Martin Novak. Here are prayers for their strength and safety and encouragement. Our Father, your hand upholds us in the grace and love of Jesus Christ, and so we pray you would tend to this church and our friends. Grant your healing, mercy, and grace to those who are in the midst of difficulty. For Eduardo and Don, for Fawn, 
for Jeff, Frida, Tammy's family, and our friends Becky and Angie, Phil, Dominic, Tom, Bob, Chris, Karen, Vicki, Caroline, and others we name to you in silence. For all those who are discouraged, resentful, hurt, and who have failed to obey you, we pray for your grace to give them the counsel they need, the power to forgive, the strength to resist temptation, and the willingness to obey. Help us to love one another and comfort each other according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and may we bear witness to him outside this church. In the name of our Lord and Savior, we bring our petitions, as he taught us to to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. As we come now to the reading and the preaching of God's word, let us first take a moment to prepare our hearts and minds to receive this, God's word. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we would ask that as we now hear your word read and preached, that you would quiet our minds and help them to focus, soften our hearts to receive your word, that we might be transformed, renewed, and strengthened through your Holy Spirit. For we do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our first reading comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 6. Listen now to God's word. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man For thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king? shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. 
No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 31, verses 1 to 8, printed in the bulletin. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. In your righteousness deliver me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. You have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Our epistle reading then comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Again, God's word. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, 
which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And then finally, our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. What is our Christian solar plexus? The solar plexus is that point right below the rib cage that is highly sensitive when it is hit. When I was in middle school, the boys thought it was fun to deliver unsuspecting punches to each other right in the solar plexus. We would be walking along in a group, and suddenly an arm would come out of nowhere, strike one of us in the solar plexus, and that unfortunate victim, which sometimes was me, would double over in pain, gasping for breath. That is what a punch in the solar plexus does to you. It shocks your nervous system. You have a bundle of nerves right there, and it makes it difficult to breathe. Well, that was middle school, at least the middle school I attended. I'm sure you all went to very decent schools. The solar plexus is a vulnerable spot in our bodies. In a non-Christian society, do we Christians have a vulnerable spot? Now, some might answer that it is our faith. The Christian faith is vulnerable to attack because we can't prove it like we can prove gravity or a mathematical formula. Try proving that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, at least those ways of proof, or that the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or that we can't save ourselves. Actually, I don't believe our faith is as vulnerable as some would say. The Christian faith reflects a narrative that accords well with our lives in this world. One of the ways we all live with narratives, and narratives are how people function, making meaning of the world and of their life. And one of the tests for a narrative is how well does it accord with reality. And the Christian faith accords very well with reality. And furthermore, our faith is a reasonable faith, which means that faith and reason can work together. Still, our faith marks us out as Christians, and we can get hit there. Another person might say it's our moral positions. At one time, public morality in this nation had a Christian shape to it. In general, our society and its laws maintained the distinctiveness of men and women, that marriage was for ordering sex and raising children, (coughs) excuse me, that each each person is responsible for their actions and the society's obligation to protect the defenseless and the helpless in society. Now, it might not have been here all along and at the same level throughout the history of this nation, but those were strong, important moral understandings that either developed more or were well in place. Well, public morality has radically changed. 
Today's society has redefined what gender means. It celebrates sex as recreation. It promotes children being raised in all kinds of alternative relationships. And even while recognizing the complicating factors of social and familial broken lives, many individuals are not held accountable for the harm that they cause to others. And this means that neither the perpetrators nor those who are harmed are helped. Now society has excluded whole groups of of people from its protection, such as unwanted babies. If you hold historic Christian moral positions, you will face opposition. But is this a vulnerability? How God has ordered his creation tends to expose the foolishness and destructiveness of morality that goes against it, against the way God has ordered his creation. And it's not just Christians who are defending this morality. It's rather interesting that many non-Christians are also standing up for some of these things that have historically been a part of the Christian uh, understanding of how we should live, like Jews and Muslims, and individuals like J.K. Rowling and Riley Gaines and Monica Snyder and Daniel K. Williams. According to Williams, he's written a book about this, 21% of those without any religious affirmation oppose abortion. Now, I don't know if there are Christians numbered in that and they're just secretive about their Christianity, but they are making general arguments against popular positions. They are also arguing against male athletes competing in female sports. Conservatives, whether they are Christian or not, are arguing for the importance of raising children in a family with a female mother and a male father. Historic Christian moral positions may be a bitter point of contention in our society, But reality has a way of making them strong and reinforcing them. And yet, once again, our moral positions, especially today, can identify us as Christians, and it's easy to hit us there. Now, in our lesson from Daniel, the vulnerability is prayer. He is hit for his daily practice of prayer. Daniel's colleagues perceive that his vulnerability lies in his commitment to God, which he expresses through his prayer. Prayer to God is how Daniel's opponents go after him to destroy him. Daniel lived in a pagan society. He and the other Jews were exiles from Judah. God's judgment had come upon Israel for the people's unfaithfulness, and as a result, the Babylonians had conquered the Jews and marched most of them, many of them, away to Babylon. The last rulers of Babylon were Nebuchadnezzar and his son Belshazzar. Babylon was a society full of hubris, idolatry, blasphemy against God, and it too came under God's judgment. Another pagan empire, the Persians, overcame the Babylonian empire, and in our lesson this morning, the king of the Persians is Darius I. We've been hearing the stories from the first part of Daniel, and they've all been concentrated on Babylon and the kings there, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. Um, But now it's shifting to this new empire and to the Persians. As exiles in one pagan empire after another, God's people had to live and work while continuing their faith and worship of God. Now, although there is much about the Persian empire that is alien and unfamiliar to us, such as a lion's den. You don't really find those around here, and if we do find them, they're at a zoo, and we all sit there and smile at it. Other elements of this story do resonate with us. Some of it may be a little bit alien, but other parts of the story resonate with us. For one thing, there is the ruthless ambition of the officials. 
The Persians organized their empire into provinces, and over each of these regions was a satrap. Satrap was a title. It was a name of a governing uh, position. Satraps were government officials who were authorized to oversee a province in the Persian Empire. If my memory serves, there were 21 of these provinces in the days of Darius. These were, they, they were not political parties. They didn't have political parties like Democrats and Republicans. The satraps were to serve the king and follow the Persian laws, and they were not to be organized into different parties. The satraps had great power, and in order to keep them from using their power for their own gain, the king appointed the three presidents or a number of presidents over the satraps who reported directly to the king. So they were sort of monitoring the satraps, and then they were personal advisors to the king. Now, theoretically, this kept the power of the satraps in check, and it made them subservient to the king. However, the Persian organization of its government did not prevent the governing officials from intrigue and ambition for more power. And now the Persian Empire begins to sound a little like our government, doesn't it? And I don't mean just the election cycles when one party tries to defeat the other party and you get all those, those, uh, those commercials and ads going on that's, that seem to be pushing the truth to an extreme um, or very one-sided, lopsided, whatever. That happens in the political cycles. I'm talking about the conniving and intrigue of governing officials to manipulate and control at any time. For example, using their office to make themselves richer, rewarding their friends and family and supporters and donors with desirable appointments, preferential contracts, and lucrative insider information. Governing leaders who try to reset the districts in the states in order to swing more representatives to where they, to swing so they can have more representatives in Congress. Historically, it's been such a problem in our country that we've enacted laws, and really it's a problem anywhere, we've enacted laws against nepotism, taking bribes, gerrymandering, and insider trading. Nevertheless, it still goes on. There's also the rivalry and vying for power among governing officials. Once one has power, it is very difficult to let it go, and there's the temptation to gain more power. Power is addictive. It's like a drug that makes us crave it more and more. Making oneself superior over others is a common feature of power. And this is precisely what the Persian satraps and presidents were trying to do with Daniel. They had found out that the king uh, was going to promote him even more in the government, and they uh, wanted to stop that. They wanted to be in charge, not Daniel. Verse 4 in our text says, Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint, against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. And it's the same in our society. Those in power try to find all kinds of ways of keeping other qualified candidates out of power. They also turn on each other and try to ruin their opponents' careers. And even today, this can happen for, this can happen for a lot of reasons, but even today it happens for race, re- reasons of race and religion such as Maureen Martin, who was a mayoral candidate in Lewisham, England. Not too long ago, Maureen Martin was president of the Christian People's Alliance, CPA it was called. This is a, a little town south of London, and she was an, is an ordained minister. She'd worked as a housing manager for 13 years before her termination. 
She was standing in the local mayoral elections when she published a manifesto in which she outlined her political position on a number of issues, including marriage. In her manifesto, she pledged, and this this is a quote, to cut through political correctness and simply state the truth that natural marriage between a man and a woman is the fundamental building block for a successful society and the safest environment for raising children. She was later investigated and sacked for gross misconduct, misconduct, and there were three complaints lodged against her, allegedly claiming she had used hate speech. This is her response. It is disturbing how Christian beliefs on marriage, which have been held and expressed for thousands of years, are being silenced and treated with such hostility and disdain in this country. I should have had a right to express my own Christian beliefs in my own private time and should not have been required to self-censor my beliefs or be forced out of my job. If my manifesto had been in support of same-sex marriage, would I have had the same response from my employer? The Bible simply does not condone same-sex marriage. If you try and take the middle ground on this issue, as the Church of England has tried to do, you quickly become compromised. As a Christian party, we are not in a popularity contest. We are in a truth contest. When it comes to truth, we always win. I thought it was well said. But she couldn't even compete in the mayoral election because she said it. Manipulation is another common practice. The Persian governing officials colluded to manipulate the king. Verse 6, Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. Then they proceeded to induce the king to enact a law that punished anyone in the kingdom who petitioned any god or king except Darius for 30 days. They did not divulge their intention to use this law to trap Daniel, but that is exactly what they wanted. That's manipulation. The officials appear to be powerful in this scheme while the king looks foolish. That's that's a major part, a component of this story. The king looks like a dope. Political manipulation happens today. Those with money try to manipulate representatives, senators, and the president. Influencers use social media to try and manipulate politicians, and politicians use social media to try and manipulate us. And it it may be rare, but officials manipulate votes, such as the very city clerk of this town of Southfield in 2019 was convicted of of, uh, removing votes that had been cast. All of this ambition and conspiring, intrigue and manipulation was swirling around in the story of Daniel. And as it did so, all of this moving about and and all this happening, as it did so, the state assumed a quasi-divine status. The governing officials were able to convince the king to elevate himself over any other god or king. Verse 5, they urged the king to make an injunction prohibiting any petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king. And the king signed it into law. In effect, this law asserted the Persian king above the gods. That's being deified. Governments have the tendency to deify themselves. In 1648, European states signed a treaty recognizing each nation's own sovereignty. Before that, sovereignty was recognized as only belonging to the sovereign god. 
The state knew that it was not ultimate before this this, uh, new idea came along. The state knew that it was not ultimate and was subject to the ultimate authority of God. Even if they tried to defy it and ignore God and and go their own way, they still recognized there was one who was greater than them. There was the king of of creation. John Murray, one of our own uh, theologians in the OPC back uh, 60, 70 years ago, said there can be but one infinite but one omnipotent, but one supreme, but one first cause, and he is the author of all. Today, the state deifies itself when it claims the right to control children who it did not create, but it wants to control them. It also deifies itself when it tries to dictate our faith to us and who we worship and our morality. Well, as you can see, God's word speaks to us in our society. Now, in the midst of all the intrigue, the rivalry, the ruthless ambition, the manipulation, and the deification of the state, Daniel did what he did every day. He prayed. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. In doing so, verse 11 says, he prayed and petitioned God. That implies that he cast himself on God's grace. Daniel's response to the prohibition on prayer was to continue praying. Now, this might sound like rebellion to us, like like telling someone not to do something, and then they go ahead and do it anyway. But what Daniel did was not rebellion. Rebellion acknowledges the superior power that someone else has and it attempts to seize it. That's what rebellion does. It acknowledges that someone else has the power that you want and it tries to take it. In Daniel's case, rebellion would confirm that Darius was sovereign and then would try to take his power. And that's why rebellion often involves violence and force. Prayer is not rebellion because it denies the ultimacy of any power except God's. It's rather subtle, but it's an important point. Prayer, in effect, says, I don't need to rebel because there's one who's higher than the king or the state. Prayer brings its petitions to the one whose power is ultimate and is sovereign over every other power. By praying politically, Daniel made it known that he feared God above the king, that he recognized God is sovereign over the king. So he didn't even need to acknowledge the king being sovereign and try to rebel against him. Prayer is an act of freedom that the power of the state cannot stop. Even if the state had killed Daniel, the prayers of God's people would continue to rise toward heaven. We Christians need to stop and ask ourselves as we listen to all those podcasts and talk shows and all the rest of it, are we trying to rebel against the power of the state or entrust ourselves to the sovereign, ultimate power of God. Prayer is a strength for us Christians. It's not a weak spot. Prayer is a strength for us for two reasons, and it's there in the king's confession after Daniel was pulled out of the lion's den. Verse 26, he's the living God enduring forever. And then verse 27, he delivers and rescues. Prayer is our strength because God is living. He's not a dead deity like all of the, god, the gods of the, uh, of the pagan nations. Nor is he just a projection of ourselves, which would be nothing more than making ourselves divine. If we are God, then we are trapped in our own failures and brokenness. 
And those who want the state, the government, to be their savior have chosen a most disappointing and fickle God. But we Christians pray to the living God who sees all things, even the secret thoughts of our hearts, as Isaiah says, and holds us accountable for our sin, who created all things and upholds his creation, who speaks his word and is faithful to do what he said he would do, who sets his course and does not waver to the right or the left. God is freely moving and acting in this world according to his will. There's life in that. He's the living God. We pray to the living God, and that's what makes our prayers strong. The other reason our prayer is strong is because God delivers and rescues. The manipulating, ruthlessly ambitious, deified state dropped Daniel into the lion's den. And this is one of the famous stories of the Bible. And it gets singled out. It kind of gets pulled out and and sort of set on its own terms. Actually, it's one in a series of God's acts of salvation set out for us in Scripture. God delivered Noah and his family. God delivered Abraham and Sarah from the king of Gerar. God delivered Israel from Pharaoh in Egypt. God delivered David from Saul. And on it goes, on and on and on. You get these stories of God acting to deliver people. God's rescue of Daniel from the lion's pit is right in line with what God was doing ever since humanity fell into sin, delivering and rescuing. And it culminates with Jesus Christ, who, as the scripture says, uh, Galatians says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. God is at work in this world to deliver us from sin and evil. Daniel is a wonderful story of God's deliverance. And the story makes it clear that it was impossible to get out of that pit. The Persian law was inviolable. As the satraps reminded the king, a law of the Medes and the Persians was that no order established by the king could be changed. Once that law is made, it is set in stone. The law forbid prayer to any other god or man than the king for 30 days And the punishment for breaking that law was locked in. Daniel was caught by this law and unable to get himself free from it. And to make matters worse, as I said before, the king was a fool. He was easily used by the satraps to trap Daniel. But the king was also trapped by his own decree. He could not rescind the law, not even a bad law. The king was powerless to rescue Daniel. And finally, the opening to the lion's pit was sealed. All this is expressing the fact that this was an impossible situation. Verse 17, a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, his own ring, and the signet of his lords. That was to say that this is sealed officially by the law of the Persians, and no one was to open it. And it was closed shut until the next day. It was impossible to rescue Daniel from the pit except for God. The next morning, the king rushed to the lion's pit, hoping that Daniel's God would deliver him. His guards pulled the stone off the mouth of the pit, and the king called out to Daniel, O Daniel, are you alive? Did your God rescue you? And in fact, God had rescued Daniel, because God is the living God. Enduring forever, who is sovereign over all, including the Persians, and their conniving, deified government, and the hungry lions. It is God's purpose to save us, and he works out his salvation in this world. And that's the other reason our prayer to this God is strong. So now we Christians pray as Jesus taught us to do. We heard it in our gospel lesson. Pray for those who persecute you. 
We pray that God would rescue us when the state becomes manipulating, ruthlessly ambition, and tries to make its power ultimate. We pray for our government. We pray for those nations and states that try to do that. But we also pray for those in power. And that's what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. And that was our epistle lesson. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and all who are in high positions, (coughs) that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Daniel, after all he went through, still showed respect for the king and the Persians. And we don't want to miss that in this story. When the king called into the pit, Daniel responded, O king, live forever. And because of God's deliverance of Daniel, the Persian state went through a kind of political reform. The manipulation, the selfish ambition, the deification of the state was thrown out with the officials. And this improved the Persian Empire. There was a bishop of Rome in the second century named Hippolytus. And he commented on this story in Daniel. He said, fancy stopping Christians praying when the prayer of the saints is designed to release God's peace and blessing in the world. Living in a Christian society, we might get hit for our prayers. But our prayers for the church and for the society are strong because of the God to whom we pray. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to rescue us and set right all things through your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the destructive policies and corruption in the government of this land would be stopped and those who rule over us would promote peace and moral goodness and respect for your sovereignty, which you have manifested in Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please stand, and having heard the word of God, let us confess and profess our faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. 
Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 713, Great King of Nations, hear our prayer. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after supper, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus instituted this holy supper, as we just heard the words of institution, he used real bread and real wine, which are signs of his body and his blood, but also are real food for our bodies. By doing this, he reveals that his death and resurrection is for the physical part of us as well as the spiritual part. The Lord created our bodies and he redeems them to love him and obey his word along with our hearts and minds. Also, the cup and the bread show us that the creation is included in God's redemption in Jesus Christ. Where did the grains from this bread come? From the hills and the fields nearby? Or where does the wine come from? The grapes that hang on the vines? So the creation is also included in this meal. When you hold the bread and the cup in your hand, know that your body is redeemed by Christ, and so is his creation in which you live. It's my privilege as Christ's minister to invite all who have been baptized to publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ 
and belong to a Christian church or communicate members of a Christian church, you are welcome to come to this table. If that is not the case for you, you should stay back until such time that you're united with Christ's church, his visible body in those three ways, through baptism, public profession of faith, and belonging or being a member of a Christian church. This is the Lord's table. He invites us to feast with him. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life and to live in love and concern for each other. Join with me in giving thanks to God for his salvation and life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. You are worthy of our thanks and praise, O Lord God. For by the breath of your mouth you have spoken your word and all things came into being. You fashioned us in your image. You placed us in the garden of your blessing to walk with you. And even though we chose the path of rebellion against you, that we did indeed rise up and try to seize your authority and power, you did not abandon your own. But again and again you drew us into your covenant of grace. You gave your people the law. You taught us by your prophets to look for your reign of justice and mercy and peace. And we do indeed watch for the signs of your kingdom here on this earth. And as we do so, we sing the song and join the song, the words of the angels and the host in heaven, who are forevermore praising you and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Lord God, you are the most holy one. You are enthroned in splendor and light, and yet in the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, you reveal the power of your love made perfect in our human weakness. Embracing our humanity, Jesus showed us the way of salvation, becoming the Savior for us. He loved us to the end. He gave himself to death for us, and dying for his own, he set us free from the bonds of sin, that we might rise and reign with him in glory. And so now, as his people that he has redeemed, we come together at this meal, and as we come, we do profess our faith that Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Therefore, we proclaim the death that he suffered on the cross, we celebrate his resurrection, his bursting from the tomb, we, we rejoice that he reigns at your right hand on high, and we look and long for his coming in glory. As we recall the one perfect sacrifice of our redemption, O Father, By your Holy Spirit, may the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup be for us a participation in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Form us into the likeness of Christ. Make us a perfect offering in your sight. Look with favor on your people and in your mercy hear the cry of our hearts. Bless the earth, heal the sick, let the oppressed go free, and fill your church with power from on high. Gather your people from the ends of the earth to feast with all your saints at the table in your kingdom, where the new creation is brought to perfect perfection in Jesus Christ our Lord, by whom and with whom and in whom, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory be yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. And we say together with our thanksgiving, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, give it for you, do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. 
As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says, the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me will live because of me. Take and eat this bread, and drink this cup, and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. 
Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we give you eternal praise and thanks that you have been so gracious to us, a poor and weak people, having drawn us to your Son, our Lord Jesus, whom you have delivered to death for us and given to be our nourishment and our dwelling into eternal life. Grant that we may never relinquish these things from our hearts, but always grow and increase in faith to you, which through the love of Christ is effective for all good works. And so may our whole life be devoted to your praise and the edification of our neighbor. Through the same, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 441, Jesus Shall Reign. Blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen.
Please be seated. Good morning. Happy July 1st. Can you believe July? Well, the first Sunday in July, July 2nd. Um, anyway, in terms of announcements, there's not a lot, uh, but just keep in mind that today we will be having our fellowship meal, and so we would love for all of you to stay and, and join in that time of fellowship and food. Um, and then also, uh, in terms of CE next week, we will be having a presentation on uh, Celebrate Recovery, which is uh, the, the Providence's initiating uh, with Amy Lauren and her uh, uh, group that's uh, going on right now. So um, just be, we'll be meeting here. So there'll be a presentation for you all to understand its work and how it fits in and aligns with the work of the church. So that's all I have. This is unusual. Heidi Wilson, nothing? Well, okay. I knew there'd be something. Thank you all for your prayers. Last week was fast and furious and amazingly exhausting. But we had a good time with our families, and uh, the reintroduction time seemed to be shorter than typical, and my children just really enjoyed being together. together. So um, that's always a good thing, right? Yep. And I thank you. Heidi had a good time with her family, <laughs> and she thanks you all for her pr- for your prayers. So, all right. Well, if there's nothing else, we'll go ahead and dismiss and uh, move towards our time of uh, fellowship. So, thank you very much. <laughs>